You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Joining us today to talk about preparing for a possible September 1st reopening for tourism, Hawaii Attorney General Claire Connors uh, to help us try and understand what more we can do when it comes to quarantining. Deputy Chief John McCarthy is with the Honolulu Police Department back for a second time this month to talk enforcement. And Angela Keene is with the Hawaii Quarantine Kapu Breakers, a grassroots group working to help identify violators. Uh, welcome, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Aloha. You know, Claire, can I, can I start with you? Because, you know, these legal issues when it comes to the quarantine, I mean, they're tricky. Yes. Yes, they are. These are, these are a type of violation that we haven't dealt with before. Normally when we've talked about quarantining individuals, it's because they have some kind of disease. We have documented proof. The Department of Health goes through a process that's in our HRS, and it's set out as to how all of these different things are enforced. So what we're dealing with here is something very new, something very different, and it's pursuant to the emergency proclamation that the governor issued. So what we have put in place as the framework for the state respect to the travel quarantine is that if you are coming into the state now we used to have an inter-island quarantine we don't any longer but if you are coming into the state now you fall into two categories either you're exempt because you're part of the united states government you're an employee you're involved in uh, u.s government work our orders as a state can't cover the federal government so therefore you uh, fall into a different category or you're exempt because you're some kind of critical infrastructure worker Otherwise, you are subject to this travel quarantine, and that does have a number of different enforcement issues that we have worked through very diligently with our uh, county counterparts, with uh, Deputy Chief McCarthy and others on the neighbor islands involved in law enforcement. So we have an enforceable system in place. We have an order that people sign that is enforceable in court. It's been the product of a lot of different discussions, and it's also something that we are able to uh, investigate in the kinds of case development that we believe will be successful throughout the court system. And we know that uh, your investigators have been involved uh, uh, in um, uh, reeling in some of these violators, but uh, Deputy Chief, what's been the snapshot for the Honolulu Police Department? Well, basically, you know, we have a lot of problems in enforcement. We can't just go out and profile people based on their color or the way they dress or, uh, and you know, lo- local returning residents really have an advantage. They just blend in. I mean, um, you, you can't go out and, pro- once they're out of the airport, it's pretty much fair game. Uh, the problem with that is we, we can't do these things. So we basically rely on uh, the public or uh, the hotels or someone, or when we come across them in a, a contact of some sort, we identify them as a, a person who needs to be in quarantine and take the appropriate action from there. The Hawaii Tourism Authority has done a fantastic job in cataloging and making that information available to us, but our problem is just with the initial approach and stop. If we have information, if we receive information of any kind, we respond and do the best we can, but uh, to actively go out and profile or do anything like that is just something that we can't do. And if I could just piggyback on, on Deputy Chief McCarthy's statements. It's, it's absolutely true that, you know, if you're at a beach area and you see people that you think might be not from Hawaii, well, that's one thing, right? And we need to uh, take a look at what that might mean. But if you are aware that a person arrived in town, is living in a house two blocks away from you, and you see them out and about, then that is something you can report, and then we can do something for that kind of instance. Also, our agents are now uh, going out and actually 
talking to people who are subject to the order of quarantine because we know, uh, all of us know who those folks are and actually doing checks, saying, hi, you know, we know you're subject to the quarantine order. I'm a special agent with the Attorney General's office. We just want to make sure you're doing well. And that's another way for us to ensure that they are in their designated quarantine location. And Chief, you say that your hands are, are, are kind of tied once they leave the airport. But, you know, uh, you do the sobriety, random sobriety checks, uh, you know, during holidays. So how is that different? That That's actually defined by case law and has come down to us. It's a very... Uh, specific method. It's not as random as it appears to be. And then it was a defined problem with drunk driving. Uh, you know, it caused fatalities. It caused major damage, injuries. So th- there was a, a overwhelming need, not to take away from quarantine being uh, a serious offense, but, uh, you know, it's just not, you're talking about apples and bananas, really, when you compare DUI roadblock checkpoint. It actually was discussed early on, but then again, it, it's kind of a throwback to uh during the discussions, we likened it to World War II, where you had roadblock checkpoints and we're asking people for their papers. I mean, can we really do that? And the idea was we couldn't do anything like that. It was just too general in nature. Uh, you're talking about a very small portion of the population as well that's coming in, you know, doing this traveling. And not only that, you do have people that are exempt, uh, essential workers uh, that have the right to travel back and forth to and from work uh, for their business. I know a DOD worker came in recently to take care of a deceased loved one's uh, affairs, and they had a specific COVID exemption just for that. Okay. And then, you know, Angela, I know you've been working with the Attorney General's office, uh, and uh, I believe the, the numbers are rising, so you've been pretty busy lately. Yeah, we're, we're really at about four times what we saw three months ago. Um, and it's in the past, I was getting maybe one or two reports a week. Um, I'm getting six to eight a day now. It's on the hour. And and explain to our listeners, you know, you, you folks uh, kind of just got organized. It was a grassroots effort, really. It was, and I'm not actually the founder of the page. Um, founder of the page is busy and off doing his own thing, so by, it was me by default. Uh, we started in late March, and, um, you know, we just started as a grassroots level trying to catch um, a a handful of people who were here back then. And I have to tell you, the folks that are coming are not your regular tourists that love Hawaii. These are, I don't want to say crazy, but they're crazy people. You know, they um, they have mental health issues. They have criminal records. They're just not your standard, <laughs> nice, wholesome, wonderful um, Hawaii tourists. It's, it's a different ball game out there now. Right, and you were involved in the... Uh, uh cult group, I guess, on the Big Island. Yeah. Yeah. The carbon cult. The cult. Yeah, there have been some notable ones. But one thing I want to make really clear, um, because I'm a former journalist, we don't implicate anybody until um, the, the, the police or AG's office does. So when somebody comes with a complaint, it goes on the back end of the group. If they post an address or a name or anything like identifying it's removed immediately, and then I tell them to email me. We get the information, and we start working with the attorney general's office. Um, HPD is busy. They have so much going on day to day. Look what broke the news yesterday. you know. And so since it's a state offense, um, it was easiest for us to just go straight to the AG's office, and I work with an awesome um, lead investigator there who takes down the information, and we work together. 
um, and we get them. We get them. Most times we get them. Up until about last week or so, we started running into some challenges with exemptions, um, and I'm hearing it from all islands that uh, that people are getting around exemptions and are getting handed out quite quite a bit. Well, you you are working and trolling uh, social media just to see, uh, you know, what the scoff laws are posting, and then that's how you're able to identify some of these uh, violators. Well, initially it was, but um, now we get reports daily from neighbors and friends and relatives because they've gotten smart with social media now that the story's been out, and we figured they would. Um, but we have hotel workers, security guards, anything, anyone within the travel and tourism industry. Those folks are giving us tips. Um, we have neighbors giving us tips. So there's a lot of condo, condo tells, you know. There's a big movement in, in um, the short-term rentals right now, and that's usually where they're going to. They'll check into a hotel for a night. It'll get confirmed. They check out. They go elsewhere, um, and then they sneak away, and that's how it happens. Well, you know, the governor, I know, had hoped to relax uh, the quarantine August 1st, but after consulting uh, with the county mayors, uh, that was put off for at least another month. Uh, we did talk to Big Island Mayor Harry Kim yesterday on whether he thought we were ready for an influx of tourists. The answer is no, we're not ready. This is why I just explained why I was glad for this delay. It gives us more chance for the you know, so-called improvement of the system. But even with that improvement, there's going to be so many problems in regards to monitoring enforcement because that's not our responsibility now. It's the states because of the university system, you know, to allow this, encourage the students to come in. And I'm saying there's a twofold why I'm making that position of I wish we would suspend all decisions on that, not for a month, but leave no time for any way to things stabilizes. And I'm not a fool of how it hurts the university. I'm not a fool to the economics impact also. But I have to put my priority on the health and welfare of the people here. And I think the mayor is you know, concerned because everybody is looking for uh, the return to school, uh, which is going to happen around the same time. And then at the same time, we are seeing the, the spikes in cases, which is the concern that the health department has uh, about the virus circulating in our community. Uh, it, Anybody want to weigh in on what? Yeah, uh, if I if I could, I'd be happy to unpack a little bit of what Mayor Kim was was talking about and his concerns were obviously expressed to the governor during these these many meetings. But there's there's two parts that that should be addressed. First is it's not just an influx of tourists, right? This quarantine applies across the board. It applies to our residents who want to leave. They want to go to Las Vegas for a couple of days, or they want to go to the mainland to take their children to college, or all these different things. So the the travelers that we are going to see coming and going are going to be a lot of people from our community who leave and go to the mainland, possibly go to an area that we're the infection is, is significant, and then come back home. So this is not something where we're, quote, reopening anything, because travel is open. It's just you're subject to a quarantine, or that we are going to be limiting who's traveling. It's going to be all travelers, including our residents. And of course, the residents pr present a concern because they are actually in our community, right? The number of contacts and contact tracing could be much larger than if you're in a hotel or if you're more of a limited area that our, our travelers tend to be or tourists tend to be. So the second thing, with respect to the University of Hawaii, that is something that uh, President Lasner worked with the governor's office, with the Department of Health with, to create an alternative to the travel quarantine. 
And that's what we all want to do, right? We know that the travel quarantine is a significant enforcement challenge. So to the extent we can create bubbles, as they've been called, or alternatives where we can put into place these safe controls, these safe practices, make them enforceable, for example, in the case of the University of Hawaii, where they will be taking on the obligation of ensuring that students who come comply with safe practices, students who come are quarantined if necessary, and things like that. So that is the state because the University of Hawaii has stepped up and said we're going to create this sort of alternative to just our quarantine option. But otherwise, as uh, Deputy Chief McCarthy and all of us will talk about, uh, monitoring enforcement is a shared obligation. The state obviously has a big role at the airport of ensuring that people come in, are put into the system, are subject to the order of quarantine in an enforceable way, and that that information is shared with the county law enforcement. You know, along the lines of that, the enforcement, the problem is the police department is charged first and foremost with public safety. We're dealing with robberies, uh, aggravated assaults, uh, traffic violations on a daily basis. We don't have the, man, uh, the personnel strength to go out and uh, knock on doors or make phone calls. on it. We can't be the quarantine police. It's, um, we just don't have enough resources to do that. That's why we react and we investigate the way we do. Uh, you know, it, it can't be pa the uh, rules or enforcement of quarantine just can't simply be passed on to local police. Uh, we're doing the best we can, and we do take action whenever we possibly can. But like I said, once they get out of the airport, um, they're fair game. The residents go home. They blend in well. The tourists, tourists aren't coming here to be locked up in their hotel rooms for 14 days. They're out and about, but how do you tell a tourist from anyone else? We can't walk up and say, you know, you look like you're new to Hawaii. Where's your papers? You know, uh, Mary... I Mayor Harry Kim also weighed in on community involvement in identifying those who aren't in compliance with state and county guidelines, whether it's quarantining or masking up. Here's what he had to say. But in regards to enforcement, this is a community issue, and it's going to take community involvement. Outside of obeying the policies of prevention, you know, they need to be our eyes and ears, too, and they should report people. You know, naturally, you hope for non-confrontational, but you hope for just friendly reminders uh, in regards to, hey, there's a face mask policy going on, you know, that kind of thing. We don't, I will never ask the community to enforce things because that shouldn't ask them to confront. But they should, if they see blatant type of disregard, they should call civil defense and report it. And Angela, you know, you're getting a lot of that feedback, right, from people, yes. from the neighbors. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just chomping at the bit to talk. So I can give you an example that we're working on right now. Um, and kudos to uh, Claire Connors because she's right. When I see the news media say, oh, 400 visitors and, you know, 500 um, locals, well, it should all be one um, because they all have to do quarantine. I have a woman on the Big Island who just returned home to her house. She came from a hot spot in Florida. We've been following her since. I believe July 3rd, and what is what date is today? And she's she, the police have been called every single day. She has a neighbor who's reporting her. We've had other members from the group try to help her on the Big Island, and this woman is coming from a hot spot, carrying a baby, hanging out with teenagers, hanging out with college students in a car, driving from one side of the island to the other to get into Costco. Um, and, of course, there's no AG investigator on the Big Island, and we do our best 
to connect with the police department. And maybe five or six times officers have come out this week, but not once were they able to arrest her. So it's a big conundrum. And meanwhile, she's mingling in the community, and she came from a hot spot. Okay. You know, if, if our listeners don't know who's following up with those arriving on the shores, you know, members of the Hawaii Tourism Authority and the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau are working on the list of tourists, and the State Transportation Department is overseeing returning residents. The respective counties are also helping. And, you know, the other day, as you mentioned, we welcomed some 400 visitors. Uh, we also had some, I think, 900 returning residents. And under normal times, we would normally see about 35,000 daily arrivals. Uh, we did have one of our listeners uh, call in to talk about their quarantine experience. Hi, my name is Beth. I'm calling from North Kohala on the Big Island. And a couple comments. I did come back from the mainland at the end of May and did self-quarantine. And we were only contacted once on the airline prior to departure in the holding area. There were multiple announcements about quarantine. On the plane, there were multiple announcements. So it's kind of Shocking to think that anybody could get here and think that they're unclear of the concept about needing to be quarantined and wearing masks. Thank you. You know, and I did talk to uh, another traveler who uh, was coming here to visit family, and, and uh, she said that she was co- she was in a hotel room for two weeks and said that she was contacted twice. So uh, w- the, what I'm hearing is that the, the, the residents are, are pretty understanding you know they they're and they're happy that someone is following up because i think they take uh, take this seriously they don't want to get anyone else sick no you're absolutely right and this is ag claire i'm talking about our investigators who've been going out and and actually meeting with people to, to do as i said hi i'm a special investigator with the state of hawaii i'm here to check in on you we appreciate that you're complying with quarantine and we've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying thank you for doing that thank you for recognizing that we're at home trying to keep people safe and for doing these kind of compliance checks in our community as Angela said I I only have an investigative presence here on Oahu so that's the kind of uh, help that I can provide here to to the enforcement efforts but we have gotten exactly that kind of very positive feedback from people that we've encountered and uh, we have a question that was emailed to us. Uh, why isn't the quarantine being enforced? I report them. Nothing happens, uh, or so he thinks. Uh, he wants to ask the AG and the chief, you know, what is the protocol to follow up on reports? Who should people call, and what does it take to catch a violator? You know, the answer to that is really simple. It's call 911. I mean, we're going to respond to every complaint, but if you call 911 and tell me the person sitting on the beach is a quarantine violator, which person on the beach. We need statements from these people to identify them, to know how they're quarantined and violated. So the problem is this is a misdemeanor offense. We need to prove that, and, and all good and said by the listener that said that they were warned at the airport and on the plane. We know that they know, but we have the burden of proof to show that these people are in violation should they go to court and contest it. So we need to know that these people are uh, knowingly violating a quarantine section. We can't just respond to anonymous complaints or uh, we, we need that proof somehow, uh, either through our contact with another, you know, if they were at a traffic stop or they present a, for, uh, a license from the mainland, and, for example, or if they're accused of a crime and they shouldn't be there or the hotel calls us, you know, those are cases where we can take action. Now, the caller may not know what kind of action we take. We may not arrest. We can cite 
in lieu of that arrest. It's, it has the same effect. Um, it all depends on the individual circumstances at the officer, and we give that discretion to the officer. And the deputy chief is absolutely right. So in the instance of the individual who'd come from California, this was a few months ago, and a neighbor saw that he was out jet skiing, well, they called um, enforcement, and our investigators then opened an investigation because, as the deputy chief says, you do need evidence, and you need it to be evidence that can stand up in court. So they went out and they watched this individual's movements because they had uh, reasonable suspicion and then probable cause, and they arrested him outside of Costco because he was honestly and, and by law supposed to be quarantined at home, and he was at Costco. So therefore, we have good evidence, and we can use that to, to prosecute the case. And so how many investigators do you have doing this? Let's see. I have... Uh, I have more than a dozen that are involved, but it's it's who are who are dedicated to this. But uh, it's a team effort, so a lot get involved. And actually, today on Facebook Live with the governor, I will have one of the investigators who's been leading this effort uh, participate. So at 4:15 today on the governor's Facebook Live, I'll have one of the investigators who can provide some details about it. And, Catherine and Angela here. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can add to that as well. So we have a file on each um, report. And I will put a file together with background information, where they came from, you know, some identifying information, whether they have a criminal record. But <clears throat> I ask each one of those reporters, is there, is there a witness that will come forward? Do you have photos or video, video of them actually breaking quarantine outside the house? We need more than just, hey, I saw this guy on the beach. You know, we don't follow those because that's, that's, um, that's a dead end trail for us. It, takes too much time to try to figure out who that person was and we don't do that so as much information as people can collect not being afraid to come forward and turn somebody in being willing to testify having actual video from your ring camera or your surveillance video or anything that will um, place that person outside of where they should be quarantined is great information that we need Okay, and then we have a call coming in uh, from Oahu. Uh, Carrie, you have a question or a comment? Oh, yes. I um, was just asked to share our experience. We had quarantined in Waikiki for 14 days before um, visiting with our family here on Oahu for the rest of July. And our experience was quite positive, though it did take some planning to figure out where are the places that we could um, properly quarantine um, in Waikiki um, that would have a kitchenette and the kinds of things that we would need to be able to properly quarantine. Um, but with some proper planning and just really planning for any of the mental and physical activities just to keep up um, your sanity when you're stuck in a room for 14 days, it does take some planning, but it, it is possible. So, so I hope that works. So how, did, how were you able to get food? Um, my sister had to, um, she would deliver food. She delivered food three times to us, and then we were able to cook during our time in quarantine. Okay, and then you got regular calls? Um, we received a call on the first or second night that we were in quarantine, and then we received a call on our last night in quarantine, and each day um, I did the online check-in that we were asked to do through the Safe Travels website. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for following the rules <laughs> and keeping everybody safe. Great. Thanks. This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You can join our discussion about uh, enforcing the 14-day quarantine. Uh, 
a call at 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. In 1994, hateful messages were spread over the radio in Rwanda. They fueled a genocide that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. If radio could tear people apart, could it also be used to heal? How a soap opera brought about reconciliation, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Tonight at 7, following says you. So often we do hear about the scoff laws, the violators of the quarantine, uh, you know, when they're arrested. Uh, and, but again, like we just heard with the caller, uh, she she did follow the rules, was in a hotel room and now is out visiting uh, with her family. Uh, you know, we did get uh, a, a number of questions, a question that came across on Facebook from Kara. She says, we're missing out on a substantial chunk of revenue for the state by not finding quarantine violators to the fullest extent. Will the police be using the funds they receive from the CARES Act to create something like a quarantine task force, a hui of individuals trained and deputi- deputized to find, find and fine quarantine violators? Chief? Uh, no, I don't. The CARES Act money is pretty specific. It has to be used for specific purposes involving COVID. It can't be used to supplant uh, regular operations or uh, create something new uh, in, in a fashion like this. It's, um, you got to remember, I think Hawaii and Alaska are the only two that are really undergoing quarantine. The rest of the United States is not undergoing. Uh, it's just different portions. Some cities are, some states are. So it's not, and, and it's a questionable thing. It's already been tested in court. I think in Hawaii, they, uh, act, the federal judge actually upheld the quarantine here. Uh, but I, I don't think CARES Act money could be used to start something like this. And, and again, it's problematic logistically. Uh, where are we going to get the personnel to dedicate to something like this? I, I think that the personnel issue is, is the larger issue. Our analysis is that, that CARES Act money could be used for this, and that we could set up these kinds of additional capacity to support the quarantine that's only because of, of COVID. But I do get the chief's concerns about manpower. We know that HPD is 200 down, and you know it's, it's, it's an issue about manpower because it still has to process through the system, right? So even if you find more leads, get more information, we still need to investigate it arrest and then process through the system. Regarding the use of fines, though, we, we do need to be careful, right, because we want to find people because they're engaged in illegal conduct, right? We don't want to find people because we're going to get revenue for the state. So we do have some of the strongest penalties across the nation. So as, as Deputy Chief McCarthy talked about, we have a misdemeanor. That's a really high citation level to, to prosecute somebody for. So it's, it's up to one year in jail potentially. And then our $5,000 penalty, that's high. New York, as uh, some know, have tried to implement a travel quarantine. They have many more challenges than we do, but their penalty is $2,000. So as we've looked amongst the other states, we have some of the highest penalties, and that's that's good because we can definitely use it to our advantage to deter illegal action. And Angela, uh, what are you hearing from your uh, volunteers? I mean, uh, you know, what are they experiencing out there? 
Well, we would, I have 5,000 volunteers. We started with 400 in, back in March, um, and they are ready to help in any way as volunteers, as a coalition, as a goodwill group. Uh, many of them had said if they are deputized, they will happily go out to certain neighborhoods and certain districts and knock on doors and drop off cookies or mac nuts and say, hey, welcome. We hope you're, you know, doing okay through, um, through all this quarantine. Um, it's come up numerous times. So trust me, if there's an ability to deputize uh, volunteers who are willing to make a difference for their community while they're not working, um, and I'm one of them, <laughs> I'd be willing to knock on doors and, and assist and do that if I knew that it was making the community safer. And because we're keeping the, the public safe, I would hope that that would be allowed. I don't know. And, and it, it probably could be. The only issue is we have trained law enforcement officers who are trained to deal with confrontation, and confrontation could always evolve out of some of those scenarios. So I like what Angela said about sort of more this uh, welcome. We appreciate that you're complying with the law. Here is, you know, a, a, a package of cookies or whatever it is. That, that That's nice, and that, that might very well be something we should look at. But we have to be very careful that our law enforcement officers are trained to deal with confrontation, and we want to make sure that mm -hmm. the public doesn't uh, try to try to enter into that role because that that could create issues. Yeah, we don't need uh, overzealous volunteers. Uh, you know, uh, Jamie uh, from the Big Island wrote to us by email about her family's experience with vigilantes. She says, "Last week, I had someone come up to my family at a local county park on the Big Island. I mentioned to the person, uh, you know, not to come near us and talk. Good or bad, we all need to have a mask on. And I mentioned that we have the coronavirus, you know, meaning the island." And the person started to say they were calling the police and videotaped our family saying on social media that we have the coronavirus. It was so scary to have been targeted like that. We have been here for 20 years and always wear our masks. I even make and donate them locally. And now I'm being worried about being harassed. Um, I feel bad about what happened. It makes me sick. Social media folks shouldn't be given the power to regulate their community and make some people outsiders. It's just wrong because it was ultimately a threat to our family. So, you know, you, you feel for folks that are accosted yeah. like this. Yeah, and actually in That's other awful. states, in, in Michigan, uh, just two days ago, we had someone shot and killed, right, over a mask issue. So we have people dying for these kinds of confrontations, and we, we want to avoid that. You know, this goes back to what I said, the problems about enforcement. Uh, whoever looked at these people, looked at them, and... Uh, thought they were visitors and accused them of such. So, I mean, that's again, we're into profiling or uh, outright discrimination or racism. We have a call. I, on I agree. I agree. We do have a call on the line. Richard from Wahewa. Hello. Hi. What's on your mind? I just thought I'd share a story about um, a client of mine from uh, New York City. Uh, she owns a property in Honolulu and she came out to get it ready for new tenants. I think it was in May. And I had contacted a newspaper previously thinking that uh, she was planning on having service workers and stuff all around her. I, I did go to her house after she had been in quarantine for almost two weeks. And she was coming out of her house with an N95 mask. And she was all covered up and wrapped up hat, big glasses, a scarf. And she kept her social distance from me. That was good. And I liked her mask. But then she walked to Safeway because she said she was out of food. And I didn't report her, but it, I liked her mask. 
I don't know. It was just a, an odd thing. Yeah, so I don't know. Uh, Chief, what would you have done in that uh, I mean, she's in situation. violation. Technically, you should have an obligation to report this person. You, you're witnessing a crime, so that's, that's what we keep asking. Ultimately, we want to gain compliance. We want people to comply with the law. And that's why we, what we've done is when they don't, we warn them, we make them aware of it, and then we start taking progressive action, in most cases through citation or arrest. And again, it varies according to the individual circumstances. You know, I know you could probably, you know, maybe say, oh, um, can I help you with it? Are you going out? I mean, I don't know. You know, right. at, at one point, do you confront the person or do you then just, uh, you know, walk away and then call call the cops? <laughs> right. That's No, that's a very good question. And if it is someone's client, for example, and they want to be able to go to their property and stay in their property and fix it up, then whoever is involved in supporting them, as the prior caller, Kat, talked about, should help them, provide them with food, see if they have services that they need. And that's what hotels are generally stood up to do, which is why we as a state only allow hotels to be designated as quarantine locations for people who have to pay for lodging, because they don't have those kind of support systems in the community like others who are living with family do. So they do need to have a front desk. They do not have the ability to call room service. They need the ability to sustain themselves in quarantine. And is there anything you can share on where we're at with identifying hotels and contracts uh, you know, with hotels on the different islands? Sure. We are in active conversation with our hotel industry. And as Deputy Chief McCarthy said, I did just defend our governor's order in federal court last week or the week before, today's blend. But we, we got a good ruling that said everything we are doing is consistent with the public health guidance. And what we are doing is we are implicating people's constitutional rights, right? That's, we all agree that everyone has a constitutional right to travel. We have certain liberties. But in times like this, the case law from the United States is clear, that the federal government um, and that order has also agreed is clear, that we as a state have the ability to use our police forces to ensure that people are safe. And we can impinge upon those liberties to those degrees that are necessary to keep people safe. So as we see possibly more people coming into our state as our uh, pre-travel testing program ramps up and we have more people leaving and traveling and then coming back into the state, we can take measures like requiring people to designate certain areas if we believe that's going to help us put into effect our public health policies. And so it is a delicate balance. We are continually evaluating all the legal implications, but I think uh, we are well along as an operational uh, matter to implementing something like that. We just need to be sure that we have the kind of factual landscape that can support that type of a decision. So it it does uh, look like we will get to a place that we will be able to designate certain hotels that meet certain criteria, safe practices, a commitment to ensure some kind of responsibility for persons who stay on their property, and then we can uh, incorporate that into the state uh, order. And I know with the... uh, uh proposal that people get tested before they get on the plane, you know, that that's, you know, out there now another month. Yeah. Uh, but I know, I think it was just this week, just yesterday, I think that in India, someone got busted because, you know, they gave out, um, you know, fake oh, certificates yeah. or, or whatever, saying that, yeah, you're, you've got a clean bill of health when they were, right. they were bogus. Well, for those of us in law enforcement, just like you can get a fake certificate saying you graduated from a university or you can get you can get a lot of fake certificates. So we are fully anticipating that when we go through the verification process with C 
CVS or Walgreens or any of these partners that the Lieutenant Governor's Task Force has been working uh, very uh, committedly to, to get put into place, that there is going to be something that is um, verifiable so that we will be able to weed out those types of falsifications. That, right. that is a part of the process. Right. We don't want to see what happened in Bangladesh happen here. No. Uh, and we, it does. We'll this is Angela. Oh, <laughs> sorry. No, no. Um, question, Claire. It, it, w the amount of exemptions that I'm seeing. So, I mean, we're, we're talking a 19-year-old girl who didn't, wasn't employed and somehow was exempt. Um, what is yeah i'd be happy if to you talk found, about, yeah. yeah if you found someone who had a false letter uh, exemption what would the ramifications for that be right well if they uh, had a false letter so they were uh, intending to be in the state and and have avoided being subject to the quarantine order what we would do is we would very likely go ahead and send investigators out there and and place mm -hmm. them under the quarantine order so the exemption is, uh, there's, as I said, there's, there's three categories uh, as we see them now, right? There's the U.S. military and government, and there are persons who, as Deputy Chief McCarthy said, are, are part of our infrastructure and are working, need to, be have, need to have that flexibility. And then there are the uh, other exemptions that are granted on a case-by-case -case basis for medical and compassionate issues, and those are a much smaller number. But it comes down to the facts, Angela. It comes down to what kind of exemption she says she has. If it's flat-out false, then she's supposed to be subject to the order for quarantine. And so we would okay. place her under the order for quarantine. If she does have an exemption, but she's not complying with the parameters of that exemption for our critical infrastructure workers, for example, you can come to the state, you can do your critical infrastructure work, but when you're done with that work, you go to your hotel room or your lodging and you stay there. So mm -hmm. if they are not complying with that, then we have a compliance issue. So it comes down to sort of what the nature of the exemption is, what the facts are, if it's flat out false, or if it's just a non-compliance issue. And we have another call coming in. Iris from Kalihi. What's on your mind? Yes. Yes. Hi. This is just a suggestion for the state of Hawaii. I was wondering if it's possible for the state of Hawaii to requisition hotels. Um, they do that. They requisition uh, properties during wartime. This is like a wartime event. You bus the potential visitors from the airport directly to these requisition hotels. You, you tell the visitors that they are responsible for making payments for the quarantine and you pay the ho those requisition hotels and their potential workers, you know where they are. You don't have to go searching all around the island for where they are, where, who they're with, and whatnot. They're there. You know where they are. The police then do not have to go hunting for them around the island. And you know, and you know exactly where they are. So if you can requisition hotels, you can do PPE and, and whatnot, and you charge the visitors for the quarantine. Yeah, Claire, I think we talked about that with Guam, right? They yes. had the hotels identified, the military personnel stayed there, and right. then now the military personnel gone. So then they've got some of their uh, visitors there. Right. Happy to talk about that. Of course, Guam is a nation, right? And we are one of our territories, so they, they have a little bit more flexibility. But with respect to us as a state, uh, dealing with some of the federal requirements and also dealing with, as I said before, some of our right to travel 
considerations and our uh, constitutional implications. The important part to, to, to keep in mind is that, yes, we can if we can justify it as a public health need, right? So that's where we're coming up with this designated group of hotels because it'll achieve a lot of the ends that uh, Iris is talking about. It'll allow us to have just a certain number of hotels where individuals are, are, are staying, and it will allow us then to be able to enforce better, to be able to put in mechanisms that we can uh, say are sound and that we can uh, we can utilize. But now with respect to the recent bubble discussions that we've been having, we're trying to achieve that very same thing. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a space where persons come off the airplane, they go to maybe a resort, um, and they have ability to, to move around that resort area, and then they agree to be monitored in exchange for coming to Hawaii, and they agree to other conditions. So those are definitely ways that we are going. And with, with the Guam example, because they, they do probably match up with us because they have the same constitutional implications that we do, there might be a specific finding there that certain people uh, have been exposed or certain people are sick, and I'm just not familiar enough with what the circumstances are. But if people are sick, and we know they are sick, that changes the whole equation. What we're talking about are people who we're just saying are subject to the 14-day quarantine because they could have been exposed, but we don't have an actual finding that they're sick. So I don't know if that was the case in Guam. Maybe it is. Well, and so who would foot the tab? I mean, if we identify hotels and have some kind of a contract with them, but who actually pay, pays the bill at the end of the day and, you know. The traveler. Okay, would be that, the traveler. That, that, that would be, no, we, the state obviously doesn't have the resources to stand this up, and we wouldn't want to do that because people are coming to our state or coming back to our state in some instances if they have to pay for lodging, like uh, the, the prior caller cat. And if they're going to pay for lodging here, either way, they should still pay for lodging. And, and so I absolutely 100% agree. Okay. We have another call on the line, Sue from Hilo. Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, I uh, I completely agree. Wait, I've got to take it off speaker. Sorry. Agree with Mayor Kim that it isn't safe because a person who's coming potentially would get a test 72 hours before, so they'd be sure to get their results back before they fly three days later. And at any time during those three days, they could be con have contact and exposure and get the virus and wouldn't perhaps show up at all. Even if there's a follow-up test, they would have exposed all of the um, people around them. Well, I, I know that, uh, yeah, we've got some time now uh, uh, and, you know, it's not real clear what's going to happen because we are watching all the hot spots across the nation uh, but, uh, you know, there is, you know, some concern, and I know, I think the Department of Transportation is, uh, you know, I think hoping to hear any day now whether they have all the contracts signed to bring in those uh, thermal screeners and all the equipment that they need to help kind of fortify our borders as people, you know, come off the planes. Right. So, so, so definitely the, the pre-travel testing program will be something that'll be in addition to the things that we already have in place, right? So the exemptions and then the travel quarantine. The pre-travel testing program is a risk mitigation program, right? So the idea there is to do point-in-time test uh, point testing so that we can say that somebody three days out doesn't have the disease. And then uh, alongside that, we would ask for a commitment to safe practices, right? So that if you are somebody who wants to come to our state, and that's the Lieutenant Governor's um, task force working on travel with Aloha, 
and things like that, then you take your test and then you don't go to parties or go to casinos prior to getting on a plane. You act as if you do want to come to our state and be a part of our program of safe practice. So when you do get to our state, either way, you're going to be part of the screening process that we've seen roll out where you'll get your thermal scan. If you test greater than 100.4, you're going to be taken to secondary. You'll be offered a COVID-19 test at that time, which um, if you're not feeling well because you have 100.4, you're probably going to take the test. So testing is built into our screening protocol. We rolled it out um, with the inter-island when we lifted up the travel quarantine there, and it will roll out on August 1 for all arriving passengers, too. So people will – there's going to be a multi-layered approach, and the pre-travel testing is just one aspect of that. Okay, we have another call from Honolulu. Diana, you're on the line. Hi. Um, I have a question for returning residents that had to travel to the mainland for a medical procedure. If they are given a COVID test three days before returning and, it, and then they get a negative result, do they are they still subject to quarantine? Yes, they are. So we don't have a pre-travel testing program in place. But what I do suggest you do is because for medical and compassionate situations, uh, there is a process for, uh, for consideration through the governor's office. So you could write to covidexemption.gov and, and see if your circumstances meet the exemption requirements. It does come with conditions, um, but it, it might qualify. Well, that's good to know. So so there is that exemptions uh, email that you can reach out to. Right. Uh, we did get another question posted on Facebook. Uh, Jessica uh, writes, there's an uptick in out-of-state vehicles presumably arriving with new residents taking advantage of low rents in unused vacation rentals, now transformed into long-term rentals. Is Matson or Port Security requiring proof of quarantine prior to being able to pick up these out-of-state vehicles? Hmm. I don't know who wants to take that one. Yeah, I'm not aware well, of that uh, uh, happening. Matson has a specific plan where you have to prove ownership, but uh, you know, a lot we do. The military continues to transfer their people in and out. Uh, so I mean, I, I've seen and heard stories with new vehicles coming in with the military. One of the problems is uh, the. Department of Motor Vehicles actually shut down for quite a while. There was no registration process, and they're slowly getting back into that. And uh, we as uh, law enforcement cannot enforce the registration section the way it is. It's been suspended until that uh, can be amended by the executive orders. Okay, we have another question uh, for the AG. John from Maui writes, Hana Hawaii, a federally funded interstate, has been shut down for months, destroying businesses, separating families. Mayor Victorino and Senator Kalani English said it was shut down to protect the people of Hana from COVID. The state gave an official cause as road work. Why was it shut down, and how is it legal to close a federally funded interstate? Right. So that that is, again, along the lines of the uh, uh, discussion I was having before, which is there are certain uh, policies that can be put into place during a pandemic like this that impose restrictions. And the road closure of Hana, I believe, was done in coordination with with the mayor and any further consideration of that, which I do understand might be in the works, would be done with the governor and the mayor. That's, that's how our whole system is set up right now, through statewide coordination. The governor works with the mayors for different issues, exactly like that one, and then there is an official policy that is uh, set forth through the mayor and then approved um, as the imprimatur of the governor once it's decided on. So that might fall into that category. Okay, and then Jake from the Big Island asks this, given the disastrous spikes unfolding on the mainland, 
uh, due to the opening up of businesses and the flouting of common sense and decency. Shouldn't Hawaii go back to more, not less restrictions, at least until we can once again get the supplies we need to do sufficient testing and to accomplish effective contract contact tracing? Well, that's exactly the policy concern that led to the pushback of the the 8-1 pre-travel testing program. So there were two, at least, considerations underway. One was the operational concerns, which we were on top of. We were ready to do it, and we'll still roll out the screening process on 8-1. But then the second were the policy concerns, exactly what uh, Jake mentions, that we have concerns about testing here in Hawaii. We have concerns about the disease raging on the mainland, including in places where our residents like to go and where travelers like to come. And so those are the reasons why we, uh, the governor, did make that policy determination. So they are very much at the forefront of our mind. We are still in an act with care order, which means that we have to act with care. We are not in the recovery phase yet. We are not in the clear. We are still quite in the middle of a pandemic, and the governor's order reflects that, the mayor's orders, including the mask mandates in Honolulu and in Maui, and soon probably in some of the other counties, they reflect that we need to act with exactly that level of care and diligence. Okay, and we have about two more minutes. Any final thoughts, Chief and Angela? Yeah, just a uh, real quick. I mean, we'd like people to cooperate and comply, and uh, everybody for, to do the right thing. We'll get by this uh, uh, in the long run and make it all safe for everybody. And Angela? This is this is Angela. I, we haven't been able to touch on um, temporary rentals, and that's a big issue, as well as Turo, which is the um, self-rented uh, cars through owners. Um, but really, if people have questions, they're always welcome to email us at quarantinebreakers at gmail.com. And you're working with other groups as well, reaching out with yeah, other partners? Yeah, you know, we're, we're re- reaching out with other um, islands, and we're also starting to work with the health department. So you'll see some more news coming out with that in the coming weeks, which is a very positive move. Okay. All right. Uh, one more minute. Actually, uh, Claire, you want to... Final thoughts? Sure, yes. You know, we we understand um, that all the different things that we've been asking the people of Hawaii to do are challenging. This is a challenging set of circumstances, but we do believe that what has been guiding us has been the public health guidance and that we are therefore proceeding as best we possibly can. And so you will see things changing. You will see the kinds of orders that we're living under changing, but always at the forefront of our mind is that it's going to be to keep the people, the travelers, the residents, the tourists in our state safe. So we appreciate, as, as everyone said, the cooperation. Everybody needs to wear their mask. Everybody needs to act as if they're infected or others are infected. And that's going to remain the case until we get the all clear. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guests, uh, Deputy uh, Police Chief John McCarthy, Attorney General Claire Connors, and Angela Keene of Hawaii Quarantine Kapu Breakers. And we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. And if you want to continue this conversation, uh, please contact the Talkback line and leave your comments. Send, send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 